Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded and a time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe, those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, my partner Ravinder is sitting across from me here in the studio looking lovely as ever. So, Rav, say hello to everyone. Share your special insight for the day. And please tell our listeners how they can learn more about our show. Well, hello, everyone. I am glad you can join us. We've got another fascinating show um, about to start today. Um, yes, if you want to contribute to the show, add your comments, ask any questions or whatever, we do have a Facebook page. So just search for Provocative Enlightenment Radio and you can find us there and you can post any questions in there if you have it. But more importantly, if there's any information shared while we are um, online, so if the guest has any orals or any other additional resources available, then we will post it right there. So just go to the Facebook page for Provocative Enlightenment Radio. All right, in this week's spotlight, I would like to discuss the power of words. In an earlier spotlight, I discussed words as slicers and dicers, uh, modifying, you know, the old saying, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will slice and dice me. When we think of hurtful words, we usually think of their emotional toll, how nasty words said in the past feel then and sometimes still today. The emotional sting from some words can last a lifetime. But setting that aside for a moment, do you know what words can do to the brain? Did you know that stress can literally shrink neurons? Think about that for a moment. What is stress but the way we interpret our interaction with the environment we live in? In other words, it's a mental thing that is usually accompanied by a verbal description, painting a vivid picture of our stress. We talk to ourselves with words that describe, but also interpret our situation. Our boss is unbelievably difficult. The heat is horrible. The traffic just wants to make me shout at someone, and so forth. In other words, our internal verbal description defines our stress and this, in turn, perpetuates our belief that the stress is due to an outside influence and not a product of our own interpretation. The fact is, stress is different for different people depending on their unique interpretations. For one person, jumping out of an airplane would be unmanageably stressful, and for another, great fun. For one person, doing the best we can in heavy traffic might mean playing music we love or an audiobook, and for another, it is a dreaded event. We spin the events in our life and in so doing have some control 
over whether we allow them to stress us. We all know stress is unhealthy, but thanks to the research at Stanford University, we now also know that it damages our brain. Stress leads to a buildup of glucocorticoids. I'll say that again, glucocorticoids. Quoting from the Stanford Press release, glucocorticoids, said correctly, can cause rats' brain cells to shrivel as the dendrite branches that they use to communicate with other neurons wither away. Prolonged exposure can kill the neurons or make them vulnerable to destruction during a brain injury or stroke. Now think about another aspect of that ever-present dialogue that's going on in your head. Stress is a part of that dialogue as I defined earlier. As I look at a situation and interpret that situation and then create words to describe that situation, the traffic is just horrible, I can't stand it, I want to shout, I've actually presented myself with the very definition of stress. So how much of your self-talk is gratitude-oriented? How much of it is blame or victim role-oriented? Do you wake up in the morning grateful for another day? Or is, thank God it's Friday, a wishful part of your self-talk? Do you look forward to your day, or is it a ritual you must endure? Gratitude has been shown to change the molecular structure of the brain, keeping gray matter functioning and making us healthier and happier. Simply by changing the way we talk to ourselves, by beginning each morning with a thank you, thank you, thank you, cannot just change your expectation, but alter the structure of your brain. Did you know that a single word has the power to change your gene expression? Quoting from Therese Borchard, editor of Psych Central, positive words such as peace and love can alter the expression of genes, strengthening areas in our frontal lobes, and promoting the brain's cognitive function. Whereas a single negative word can increase the activity in our amygdala, the fear center of the brain, this releases dozens of stress-producing hormones and neurotransmitters, which in turn interrupts our brain's functioning. Do you know what the most dangerous word in our world seems to be? In the words of Professor Anthony Newberg, if I were to put you in an fMRI scanner, a huge donut-shaped magnet that can take a video of the neural changes happening in your brain, and flash the word no for less than one second, you'd see a sudden release of dozens of stress-producing hormones and neurotransmitters. These chemicals immediately interrupt the normal functioning of your brain, impairing logic, reason, language processing, and communication. In fact, just seeing a list of negative words for a few seconds will make a highly anxious or depressed person feel worse. And the more you ruminate on them, the more you can actually damage key structures that regulate your memory, feelings, and emotions. You'll disrupt your sleep, your appetite, and your ability to experience long-term happiness 
and satisfaction. If you vocalize your negativity or even slightly frown when you say no, more stress chemicals will be released, not only in your brain, but in the listener's brain as well. The listener will experience increased anxiety and irritability, thus undermining cooperation and trust. In fact, just hanging around negative people will make you more prejudiced towards others. The bottom line is obvious. Be kind to yourself. Choose to be grateful. Choose to treat yourself kindly with positive words. Pay attention to your self-talk. Choose to treat others as well with positive words. Think of your language, both in your head and out of your mouth as potentially a helpful vaccine or a contaminating virus. Those are my thoughts. What are yours, Ravinder? Oh, I'm a strong believer in being kind to yourself. I think, you know, oftentimes when it comes to the areas of self-improvement, personal empowerment, people can put on, you know, really high goals for themselves and then they beat themselves up when they don't achieve them and, uh, that only exacerbates the whole problem. So I am, I'm just a, a firm believer in being kind to yourself and paying attention to your self-talk. They, it matters. You know, those small things. I'm always correcting other people when I'm, when they're having conversations. And if, if the person I'm talking to says something along the lines that they're always stupid, they always do this. Well, no, you don't. Or I'm old. That's that's the one that I hear a lot these days. I'm getting old. I have to slow down now. I have to do this. I have to do that. You know, people our age can't do. And it's like, shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Shut up. Don't do that to me. You know, and I think you and I shared um, someone we know who made a post on Facebook today that was uh, exceedingly virulent, in my opinion. Um, accusatory and negative and nasty and and all embellished in a way as though, you know, this was a good thing. I'm 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 making my stand, you know, and and this is important. We should all gather around it, rally around it. I think you know. I'm sure that the intent is is not. I mean, when people read things, they read them usually in their head aloud. Uh-huh. In their head aloud, yeah. that's kind of an oxymoron, but you uh-huh. understand what I'm saying. Uh-huh. So, you know, all of this, all this negativity that was built in there, I mean, you, people just don't realize how damaging that is. Absolutely. You know, yeah, be kind. Be okay. kind to yourself, be kind to everybody else. Amen. Usually I read some letters every week, but the spotlight was a bit longer than usual, so we're going to skip the letters segment and get to our guest today. That said, we do appreciate your comments, so please keep them coming. Now to today's guest, The Unconscious Part 2 with Professor Joel Weinberger. Now, Professor Weinberger has been with us before. That's why it's Part 2, and he is a favorite of mine. But for those of you who may have missed that show, let me tell you a little about him. Dr. Joel Weinberger is professor of the Derner School of Psychology at Adelphi University. He completed his postdoctoral work on human motivation at Harvard University. He is a fellow of the Association of Psychological Science and of the American Psychological Association. 
He has authored or co-authored approximately 100 publications. His new book, The Unconscious, is the best I have ever read. Dr. Drew Weston of the Department of Psychology and Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Emory University says it all, and here's his quote. A must-read for anyone who wants to know how our minds and brains really work when we're not looking. I think it's not good to add, even when we're looking. But continuing, no one other than Weinberger could have pulled together this important work. No one else has spent the last 35 years working with unconscious processes, both in the laboratory and the clinic, without overvaluing or devaluing either setting. Okay, on that, let's get him in here. Welcome back to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Joel Weinberger. Hey, Elvin. Thank you for having me again. It's a real pleasure to be back. Thank you. Well, it, it is indeed my pleasure. You know, I, everything I said about you and your book, I mean. Uh, you heard today's spotlight, Professor. What, why is there such power, such gravity to negative words? I did hear it, uh, Elvin. I, I was very touched by it. I also like that you didn't just focus on the negative you focused on the positive and then Ravinder jumped in about loving yourself. So uh, I'm going to have a crazy association and then I'll go into the science part of it. Uh, more than 2000 years ago, the great sage Hillel uh, said, if I am not for myself, who will be for me? But if I am not for others, then what am I? And so this kind of wisdom has been around. I don't know why more people don't get it for uh, millennia. Now, I, I think what happens to, to now fast forward to science is that when you say words to yourself or to others, you trigger not just that one word, you trigger an entire associative network connected to that, and you also start building associative networks. So for example, you use the, uh, the, the expression no. No is not just a single word. No triggers all kinds of things in your head. No, I can't, no, I won't, no, I'm wrong. And when all of these associations get triggered, a whole negativity gets triggered along with it. On the other hand, if you, uh, and by the way, it gets triggered in other people too. You've now brought them down. We know this. When you say neg negative things to someone else, you, you dampen their mood, you dampen their thinking. On the other hand, if you say something positive, then a different associative network is triggered and a different associative network is, is built. So the more often you do the negative, the larger that negative associative network is to the point where even if you say something positive, like it's a nice day, yeah, but tomorrow it'll probably rain. You're gonna start having that kind of associative network versus something bad happens and you have a positive associative network built into your head. Oh, a challenge, I can, I can meet this challenge and I can make something of it. So uh, hopefully I haven't been too long winded, but I, I was really moved by your, by your spotlight. So thank you. No. So thank you. Listen, Professor, it's my understanding, and, and I think you may have cleared this up. Um, I, I, I'm going to digress, I guess, here. Most of us, I would think, in today's day and age have a larger negative associative network than we do a positive. It just seems to be the way things are. It shouldn't be, but it does seem that way. Um, heightened fear and... And a lot of don't do this and no, you're not old, you know. Anyway, is that behind why negatively uh, 
words presented that are negative seem to have greater power when they're presented as a subliminal than a positive word. Is is that the reason that is true, or have I got it wrong? You've got it uh, about half right, and I wouldn't say the other half is wrong. I would say there's just more to it. It's a good question. So we're built, let's go back to our ancestors in the Pleistocene era on the uh, African savanna. Um, it's more important to avoid danger than it is, in, at least in a single instance, than to find something positive. If you miss something positive, you might go hungry. You might miss some fun. If you miss something negative, you're going to die. Uh, and so we're built to notice the negative more. That doesn't mean we have to always notice the negative. And I think that's the part that, that you're describing. So I'm on the African savanna. I better notice that there's a leopard around because I won't get a second chance. If I don't notice a fruit tree, I might get a second chance. Okay, now we come to, to, to the modern era. Um, I don't have to be so focused on the leopard in the way that we live now. There are, there are many more variations to life. There are many things I can make positive. So I think that our culture built on this has gone more negative than it needs to. Uh, the media goes more negative. The uh, people, uh, it, since the negative attracts more attention, people who want attention will talk about the negative. Just a simple example, you're riding on the highway and you see a car crash. Everybody stops, everybody looks, and everybody curses out the other guy for stopping and looking, and then they do the same thing. You're now on the highway and it's the fall and the leaves have turned beautiful colors. Nobody stops. You may notice it, you may comment on it. And I think if we focus on that and, and make ourselves realize that, then we should stop and look at the leaves. We'll have more enjoyable lives and build better positive networks. Amen. Amen. All right. I want to talk to you to some extent today about subliminal work, because that's something you've got a great background in. And, and I want to begin by looking at, you know, some of the controversy. So John Burdick recently wrote this, quote, the theory of subliminal messaging, it turned out, was based entirely on a few fraudulent clinical studies with falsified results. The study of the behavior and its manipulation has continued unabated and with, I am sure, a fruitful yield, even if many of the ecstatic claims of subliminalists and CIA's MKUltra mind control program turned out to be false grails in dystopian science fiction. Now, you've spent 35 years, and he's talking about a lot of the work that was done in the 60s and 70s, Okay. You've spent 35 years studying subliminal information theory. Indeed, you studied under Lloyd Silverman and, and were involved in the development of what is, what is termed the symbiotic message. And I'll ask you about that later. But, Professor, how do you respond to Burdick's assertion that those early studies were fraudulent clinical assertions reporting falsified results? So I, I don't know how he knows that they were fraudulent, that someone come and confess to him. Uh, the germ of truth, this is always the problem when you make grand assertions. The germ of truth is that a lot of the early um, claims about subliminal stimulation were overblown. Not usually by the scientists, usually by, by people who tried to make use of them. By the way, I want to tell the audience that you too are an expert in subliminal stimulation. It's not just me. Um, and 
what ended up happening is, you know, there was this supposed study, uh, drink Coke, eat popcorn and in a, in a drive-in theater and it worked and everybody started eating popcorn. That was fraudulent. That was made up. So yeah, now you victory. Right. Exactly right. So you take that and now you transpose it to a legitimate subliminal study. And we now know that subliminal stimulation are registered. The only debate now within the field is not whether subliminal stimulation are registered and can affect behavior. The debate is uh, how sophisticated is the processing of that stimulation. I'm on one side of the debate. Uh, some people are on another side of the debate. But there is no debate in the, in the scientific literature that subliminal stimulation can be registered and can have effects. So I yeah. need to hear from him who he's accusing of fraud and on what basis he's accusing them of fraud. We both knew the late Howard Chevron. Chevron testified in 1984 before Congress that, uh, uh, opposing Lloyd Silverman, that uh, subliminal stimulation could not influence behavior. And then a few years later, testifying in Reno, Nevada, in the Judas Priest case, with enough extra research, he changed that position and was emphatic that subliminal uh, stimulation could influence behavior. What, what what do you think has caused the bulk of that change? Or do we have to just look at the whole story of consciousness and unconsciousness, behaviorism, that whole history? Well, with, without having to look at that whole history, what changed for, for uh, Professor Chevron was he was a scientist and he was convinced by data, which is how you should operate if you're a scientist. So he had one point of view, and I know you testified at that trial last time. You 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 uh, you told me Correct. about the last spoke. Um, so he had one set of data that he looked at years past. This is normal in science, right? You you believe one thing, time passes, data are collected. Uh, you you look at the new data and you go, you know what? I was wrong, and uh, now now I believe uh, what the data show me because I believe in science and I believe in data. So uh, Professor Chevron changed his mind because the data changed his mind. And by the way, he did subliminal studies himself and showed that they had effects. Lloyd Silverman did subliminal studies. I've done subliminal studies. Now, subliminal is, is a word that usually people think of as um, it's very quick and you can hardly see it. And that's a way we as scientists can control it, manipulate it. That doesn't happen much in the real world. In the real world, what's subliminal is you hear, see something out of the corner of your eye, you hear something out of the corner of your ear, someone says something and it, it leads to a link of associations and you're not aware that that happened. That's the way it happens in the real world. So there's some artificiality <clears throat> to subliminal stimulation. Nonetheless, the data are clear. Right. Subliminal <laughs> stimulation can affect people. No ifs, ands, or buts. The only question is to what degree and... and, and uh, how sophisticated the processing is. All right, Professor, tell us about the symbiotic message for, I believe, you know, there's actually two of them, uh, the daddy and the mommy version. And the messages were shown to influence everything from, you know, uh, dart-throwing ability to to uh, the expression of uh, serious uh, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia. Tell us about that. Sure. So Lloyd Silverman was a psychoanalyst, so that's the context. And his wife, uh, who's still practicing, Lloyd unfortunately passed away, is, is still a psychoanalyst practicing. And one of her patients 
had a, an insight that was to understand how she functioned. She said, wow, mommy and I are one. That's the issue. And Lloyd heard that and he thought, maybe this underlies a lot of psychotherapeutic change, that you have a fantasy in your head that mommy is there with you, you are united with her, and this is a good thing. So he presented that, that uh, message subliminally, and uh, he found that it had a lot of positive effects on people. If you present it before um, a, uh, a teaching session, before a class, grades will improve. If you present it before a psychotherapeutic session, outcome will improve. Uh, in, in my studies, uh, I was trying to understand why that happened. We found that implicit but not explicit mood, and I can explain what the difference is if you like, uh, was what, what changed. So the idea is that when you do psychotherapy, when you one of the things that clearly is what matters in psychotherapy is the therapeutic relationship. In fact, it probably matters more than anything else. So the question is why? Here you are, you're coming in with problems, and you're, you're talking to somebody. Why just having a relationship with that person should matter? So the idea is it triggers something in your head. What does it trigger? It triggers a sense of we-ness. I'm not in this alone. I'm with this other person. Who was the original person in, from whom you got the we-ness? Who was the original person that took care of you? Who was the original person that you trusted? It's your mother, typically. Now, some people have had rotten mothers, uh, unfortunately. But for the most part, there's a kind of a comfort uh, in thinking about your mother. So that's where the message Mommy and I Are One came from. And that's why it, it seems to have all of these varied effects that you point out. By the way, the, uh, the dart throwing was more of an Oedipal study. It was called beating dad is okay and beating dad is wrong rather than daddy and I are one. Uh, that was more of a competitive Oedipal message. But the rest of it, yes, it was um, improved grades, improved outcome in various forms of psychotherapy, improved mood. It seems magical until you come to the realization it actually comes back to your spotlight. If you trigger positive things in people's heads, you're going to end up with positive outcomes. And what's more positive than the love of a mother for her child? Right, amen. Um, I, I, I would like to pursue that with the archetypal nature of mother, but I've also got a listener who would like, who indeed wants you to, to flesh out explicit versus implicit uh, mood, and it's easier for you to do that and me to type him out an answer. We have a break in front of us. When we come back, we'll pick it up right there, if that's all right with you, sir. Sounds We're speaking great. with Professor Joel Weinberger about his work and book, The Unconscious. Do go get this book. Um, if you want to know anything about your own mind, how it works, why you do what you do, why you say you're not going to do something, and then you do exactly that, why you have repeated self-sabotaging patterns. This is a must-read. I mean it. Go get the book, The Unconscious, Professor Joel Weinberger. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at implicitstrategies.com. One word, implicitstrategies.com. All right. Do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Many dogs and cats spend endless days indoors staring at the wall, living for the moment when you will come home and tell them you love them, take them out, and make a fuss over them. Dogs and cats need physical exercise and mental stimulation, things to do and think about in order to be healthy and happy. 
Please set time aside for them and give them a real life and real love. For more information, please contact People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals at 757-622-PETA or helpinganimals.com. That's helpinganimals.com. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to innertalk.com. A silent battle has been raging for the territory of your mind. Like a virulent virus, the effects are spreading. In Gotcha, Eldon Taylor explores the 24-7 bombardment of information designed to manage your thinking. He demonstrates how new sound bites are championed into personal awareness, becoming memes of the culture. And this results in framing and reframing classical positions, causing adjustments to personal values and history itself. Your every decision process is being managed and manipulated. Gotcha exposes the arrival of the Orwellian age in full-blown technicolor. In laying bare the current uses of the many sophisticated techniques, Eldon reveals what it is we need to do in order to avoid allowing others to puppet our thoughts. For details, go to eldentaylor.com backslash gotcha. The great courses cover a broad array of university-level disciplines. The lectures in each course are either 30 or 45 minutes long. By listening for less than an hour a day, you can finish even the longest course in just weeks. Browse our catalog or website at thegreatcourses.com and imagine how much you could learn if you spent just 30 minutes a day for the next year in the best college classrooms in the world. The lecturers are university professors carefully selected by the great courses and its customers for intellectual distinction and teaching excellence. Hi, this is Bill Maher. I can find humor in almost anything, but one thing I never laugh about is cruelty to animals. If you don't get the joke either, write People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, 501 Front Street, Norfolk, Virginia, 23510. New scientific research has repeatedly demonstrated that the power of your mind can do wonderful things if you believe in yourself. Indeed, it can literally change the brain, increasing cognitive abilities, rewiring connections, and even adding gray matter. And all you have to do is invest a little time in tuning your mind. The perfect toolkit for just that is the patented and proven effective InnerTalk technology. InnerTalk changes the way you talk to yourself and that changes everything. For when you truly believe in yourself and your own abilities, magic happens. InnerTalk has over 300 programs to choose from, ranging from health and wellness to prosperity and success. From accelerated learning to relationships, from habits and addictions to spirituality. 
Remove the doubt and fear now. Go to innertalk.com today. Hi, I'm Peter Singer. Many people would like to help those in great need in developing countries, but they don't really know whether a donation will do good. They wonder if the money will get to the people who need it. Now you can find the best organizations by going to www.thelifeyoucansave.org and clicking on Where to Donate. The Life You Can Save doesn't take any money from the organizations it recommends. It's simply trying to do the best it can. Thank you. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Professor Joel Weinberger about his wonderful book and work, The Unconscious. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at implicitstrategies.com. I'm going to tell you, do go get this book, but also visit this, his website. There's a lot of material there, implicitstrategies.com. All right, every week we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some real meaning to them. By now you know that music psychology is an interest of mine. It's a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. Now, your chosen music for today's show, Bring It On Home To Me by Sam Cooke. Professor, tell us. Why this music, and more importantly, what does it tell us about who you are? Uh, I'm kind of glad you had me on mute, because I can't help but sing along to this song. It just transports me. In my my opinion, Sam Cooke was the greatest pop singer that ever lived. Unfortunately, his life was cut short. He was murdered. Um, I think he was in his 30s, incredibly talented person. And... This is a song of uh, lost love, but hope. And uh, he sings it so well. And by the way, the, the background singer is Lou Rawls, who went on to have a great career of his own. They were very good friends. What does it say about me? Uh, that uh, I, I have hope, and I'm wistful, and I, I like the blues, I guess, although this is not a blues song. 
that that kind of talks about sad things, but then says it's all going to work out in the end. So um, I don't know. There's something very visceral about this song to me. It's also the time of life when you first hear it, I'm sure. But any song by Sam Cooke, uh, I can listen to all day. In fact, I've uh, my teenage children love Sam Cooke because I listen to it. And they they feel similarly. I, I think you cannot. If you listen to Sam Cooke, you have to love his stuff. It's just incredible music, incredible singing. I agree. Totally agree. That's a great insight. Listen, before the break, I said I was going to come back and ask you a couple of things. Uh, pick up from the symbiotic. Do you think that there is even a another explanation to the work you and Professor Silverman did with the mommy message that would would reach more to the archetypal you know when we think of mother there's mother earth there's uh, you know uh, mother father god there's uh, mother you know is, is there a possibility that this goes beyond so if you've had a bad relationship with your personal mother that it, it, it still has a higher meaning a more archetypal meaning you know that that it's funny that you say that. I hadn't thought of that as an explanation, but it fits some data I'm now collecting, which is that if you had a rotten mother, I'm now measuring that in a study. The mommy and I one message still works, and we try to understand that as you nonetheless still have a fantasy of of a positive mother, even if you didn't have one. But another explanation you just offered, which is that you're getting even further back than mother. You're getting to the archetype of the good mother, whether it be Mother Earth or there's just built into us a need to connect to a mother. I, I don't know which it is. And so what we have in, in statistical terms, we had a main effect for the message, mommy and I are one. We had a main effect for whether you had a good mother or not. This is all on implicit mood, which you asked me to define, I'll do in a minute. So that having a good mother leads to higher implicit mood. Listening to the uh, seeing that, I'm sorry, the message mommy and I are one, also independently of one another, they both work and then they can interact. So if you had a good mother and you saw the message, your implicit mood is higher than any of the other conditions. So what I mean by, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I didn't want to interrupt. Go ahead. I, you, what you've got to say is more important than me. Go ahead. I doubt it. But anyway, um, <laughs> The, the uh, what implicit mood is, is it, well, it's easier if I start with explicit mood. I ask you on a scale of one to seven, how happy are you? How excited are you? Uh, how much of an, a good mood are you? How depressed are you? How lazy are you? And so on. So you now tell me by going in your head and, and trying to think of that mood. But mood can also be spontaneous. and You're unaware of it. Clinically, you see this. Well, you don't have to see it clinically. In, in real life, you hear someone say, you say to someone, you seem angry. And they go, I'm not angry. Well, uh, I think you are. Uh, you just demonstrated it to me. So the way we measure implicit mood is we, we do this kind of manipulation, this, 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 this kind of intervention. And then we ask people, uh, we want you to um, recall uh, anything that, you, that, that comes to your head that happened to you before you were 14. We, wanna, we don't want it to be last Wednesday. These are mostly undergraduates. So it's a few years ago. Um, and just start listing memories. One, no, no censorship, no, no thinking about it. Just start listing them. We give them about five minutes. Then we say we want you to put a plus or minus sign next to the memories to say whether they're positive or negative. 
And then when they do that, we say, now we want you to rate them from one to seven, where a plus seven is the greatest thing that ever happened. A minus seven is the worst thing that ever happened. A, my, a plus one is eh, and a minus one is eh, and everything in between. And people can do that. And that's our measure of implicit mood, because they didn't write down the memories because they uh, are thinking of their mood. But the idea is that, and we know this, when you're in a good mood, you have happier memories. And when you're in a lousy mood, you have rotten memories, right? When you get into an argument with someone, everything that they ever did to you for the past decade comes into your mind. And you go, you remember when I was seven, you didn't buy me a present for my birthday. And when you're in a good mood, everything that pops into your head is positive. So that's our measure of implicit memory. And in the real world, you can just see how people behave and you'll know what their, I mean, I'm implicit mood, I'm sorry. You can see what their mood is like. I hope I've explained it okay. Yeah, no, that was excellent. That's very good. Back to the symbiotic for a second. What I was going to say is some of my own research is what led me to believe it's archetypal. Um, when you when you talk about mommy and somebody says, I have a good mommy or I have a bad mommy, you know, the very first question is, uh, well, what makes her bad or what makes her good? And we reach for an archetype then. We, we have an image in our mind of what a wonderful mommy would be or what a bad mommy is. Uh, and, and we make that comparison. And I've used, and, and I kind of like your, your feedback on this, I have used, and, um, and, and we've run a number of double-blind studies now, utilizing both uh, mommy and I are one, and it's okay to do, dad, uh, it's okay to do better than daddy, with uh, some really great, robust uh, results. Have, have you ever worked with the two of them combined? Never have, and uh, I don't think Lloyd ever has, so I'm really curious about your findings. Uh, they, they work opposite ends of the spectrum, so to speak. One is just this being suffused with good feelings, and the other one is you don't have to hold yourself back. Uh, Correct. The, since you're doing archetypes, there's an ancient story uh, about uh, Achilles that uh, the prophecy was <clears throat> that uh, the, the, his mother, her son would be greater than the father. And Zeus wanted to marry her, but he went, wait a second, greater than me means going to be king of the gods. But a mortal man married her because to most of us, having your son surpass you is great. We want that. And I think that was the message of the myth, speaking of archetypes, is that because we're mortal, we want our legacy to move on. And But yet kids somehow get the message that they shouldn't surpass their father, either overtly or covertly. And so by giving them permission to pass their father, I think you, you can enhance their behavior and then top it off. I'm, I, I, never, I never did that study. Top it off with mother love or the archetype of, of a maternal love. And I think you would get great results. I just hadn't thought of it. Well, great. Thank you. Listen, you detail a very interesting history in your book uh, regarding subliminal communication. Uh, Please share with our audience the story behind the suggestion to ban the term subliminal from the lexicon (laughs) of psychology. Okay. Uh, I'll try not to make it too long-winded. Uh, back, back in the 1950s, there was a uh, 10-year period of study of subliminal um, stimulation called the new look. It was a play on words at the fashion craze and because you look, but you didn't see it, and on and on. Anyway, 
So there were all of these studies, but the zeitgeist was off. It was the age of behaviorism. It was the default was consciousness. That, that seems counterintuitive. So I'm going to back up for a second and do say a little more about that. The, the default then, and to some degree to most people still is now, unless you can prove something is unconscious, it must have been conscious. That seems crazy to me, but that was the way people thought back then. So that if there was any hint that you could discriminate a stimulus, that meant you were aware of it, as opposed to there are degrees of awareness. Or how about the other way around? Unless you can prove that you actually were totally aware of it, you were unconscious of it, which is more what the zeitgeist is now. So anyway, so what happened is people didn't like this stuff. People don't like thinking that uh, Freud said this way back in the day, that they're not masters of their own fate. There are all these influences on them that are affecting them and and uh, they're, they're not in control. So people don't like it. So the way to get rid of studies, if you don't like a study, is to find a methodological flaw. Because there are always methodological flaws. No study is perfect. What, that's why you need a series of them. So they kept finding methodological flaws to these subliminal studies. And then people would correct the methodological flaw and they'd find a new methodological flaw. So finally, one guy wrote a, it was a brilliant paper, but what he ended up saying that no one reads, his name was Erickson, not the famous Eric Erickson, it's different Erickson. Um, he said, clearly things happen outside of awareness. However, these studies are not demonstrating subliminal uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt. That's what he actually said. What it was taken to mean was that there's nothing going on unconsciously. And then came, therefore, this whole field is nonsense and stupid, and no one should do these studies anymore. Let's ban the word, which, when you think about it, is so unscientific and so lacking in, in, in openness to knowledge and new thinking. You don't ban things in science. But yes, that, that did come out that they should ban the word subliminal. And for about a decade, uh, you saw very few studies dealing with unconscious processes. It held us back tremendously. In fact, it held us back till the 1990s. But for a solid decade, pretty much nothing. Amen. As a follow-up, I've got to go to your book. There's a line in your book that I'm going to ask you about. You write, quote, it is ironic that the study of unconscious processes began with consciousness as a given and unconsciousness as questionable, whereas now unconsciousness is a given and consciousness is mysterious and questionable, close quote. Are you implying by this, Professor, that the conscious mind may be the tail of the dog? You know, it's a good question, and the, the, the real answer is I don't know, except I think it is. Uh, I, I think that uh, what happened historically is, uh, without getting into the whole Descartes thing, is that consciousness became definition of mind, and therefore it wasn't conscious, it wasn't mental. Now that we've studied things, we know, and, and we should have known it. You know, animals uh, that are not human do all kinds of things. Insects do all kinds of things. Do we imagine that they're contemplating the future, they do it unconsciously, but somehow humans don't, it's crazy. So then the question becomes to what degree, consciousness is on top of unconscious, we've developed it over evolutionary time. What does it do for us and to what degree does it do those things for us? And, and uh, unfortunately, Eldon, I don't know the answer, but if you ask me if you, where I'm gonna put my money, I'm putting my money on the unconscious with consciousness having a secondary role. I totally agree. 
there are a lot of views about the home of the unconscious. Some of these theories locate, you know, the unconscious in body parts, parts of, you know, like the modular theory. Uh, while others address the action of the unconscious in some kind of computational manner. What are your thoughts on this, and where would you go to find the unconscious, sir? The unconscious is everywhere. I don't think I'm going to find a piece, because this is an old problem in, in, in studies of the brain. Like, what is the pontifical neuron? That's what William James said in 1890. There is no pontifical neuron. You have the brain doing its thing, and consciousness is a mystery. There's no, like, consciousness resides in this piece. There's no guy watching a television set inside your head, uh, noticing what's going on and making decisions. Um, the Daniel Dennett, the, the, um, the eminent uh, philosopher, calls that the Cartesian theater. That doesn't happen. Somehow, consciousness arises out of all the activity of your brain. But all the activity of your brain is unconscious. So there's no place for it because it's everywhere. It is who you are. And then the mystery now, and that's why I wrote that sentence, is where does consciousness come from? Is it epiphenomenal? Does it arise as an emergent property of all of this stuff that's going on inside your head unconsciously? The answer is we don't know. If I were to guess, I would say it's an emergent property. But that would really be a guess and, and, and nothing more than that. All right, I, I have to ask the question, a question that I never like to ask. Uh, in fact, I, I think you're the first interviewee, I'm sure you are, that I've ever asked this question of, and it's the most obvious question that, you know, everybody that interviews anyone asks. Uh, but your book is written in such a way and took so much of your lifetime. Why did you write the book? <laughs> Um, okay, there, there's a historical reason and, and a, uh, uh, a kind of data-oriented reason, a, cl a clinical reason. So the historical reason is I'm in grad school, you're back during uh, the Revolutionary War when I was in grad school, and the professor said to me, apropos of what we just talked about, in a course on human motivation, that there's no such thing as the unconscious. And I sat there and I thought, he's crazy. What, what, what is he? How can he say that? And so I needed to find out how anyone could say that. So that, that's the historical thing. And then, of course, behaviorism said, yeah, there's no unconscious. Also, there's no conscious. It's just behavior. And uh, I thought that was crazy. So I, I went and I had to study philosophy, which uh, Eldon, between you and me, I'm not particularly good at, uh, but I forced myself to do it. And I found out the historical reasons for why uh, the unconscious was denied. Now, fast forward a little bit, and I'm a practicing clinical psychologist, and most of what's going on in my patients is unconscious. Otherwise, treatment would be very simple. You say, you know, you get involved in a lot of self-destructive relationships. You really should stop. And the person would say, oh, yeah, you're right. I'll, I'll stop tomorrow. But in fact, what you get instead is rationalizations, denials, um, uh, discussion, and you realize that motivators and what's going on, the person's not stupid, the person's not bad, they are just not aware. And so I, I, and all clinicians know this and they study it, but then all the clinical theories go back decades. I mean, psychoanalysis, let's leave out Freud, even modern psychoanalytic theories are decades old. Um, cognitive therapy, going back to Aaron Beck, decades old. 
they are not looking at the scientific literature. The scientists, for their part, are busy studying normal stuff like how I pick up a coffee cup or, um, you know, how I make uh, mundane, uh, unimportant decisions. And they're not thinking of the implications of what they're studying for, for, for a clinical phenomenon, for everyday phenomena. So grandiose or stupid or naive, whatever you want to call it, I thought, well, I do clinical work. I do research. I'm going to try and do this. And so I had to read in all of these areas. And my hope is, and I don't know if I'm, if I'm being utopian here or, or, or unrealistic, is that the clinicians will read it and see that there's stuff out there that they can incorporate that can explain mental functioning and psychological functioning. And the researchers will read it and say, wait a second, I got something here that actually has more implications to everyday life and to psychotherapy than I realized. And then they'll talk to each other and I won't have to have a glossary. My book has a glossary in the back. I should say our book, Valentina and I wrote it. And the reason it has a glossary is because there are different vocabularies. And these people just don't talk to each other. And uh, for the life of me, I'm not sure why. I mean, historically, I understand it. And so I thought I'd give it a shot. Uh, thank you for asking me that question. I've never really fleshed it out in my head. Well, that's great. That's a great answer, too. It is. You, you are the first and only person I've ever asked that question of. You know, when you, uh, when you have a guest come on the show, it's like they all seem to think that that's the most important question. And for me, it's been like, you know, hey, what do I care about that? Let's talk about what the book's going to do. Sure. Uh, but before we drop that subject, I've recommended your book to a number of people now who are like life coaches and or motivational trainers, um, not just, you know, the therapist and the average person, because I don't think there's anybody out there that interacts with another human being, including a parent with their child, that won't benefit from understanding how this whole unconscious process works. Uh, and there are some, I mean, there, there's some areas like, well, as a parent, I'd really want to know, for example, about the you know, the power of implicit learning, those early implicit experiences that my child can have. I'd want to be really cautious there. Uh, and so I might, I might find that segment to be the most important part of the book. And if I were, you know, uh, practicing as a therapist, it'd be some other. But I, 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 I think you have achieved what you wanted out of the book. I think the book is a compelling read. To that end, I want you to tell everybody how they can get it and what they're going to find if they'll visit your website, uh, which I think is loaded with information. And you, I'm sorry, you've got about 30 seconds. <laughs> okay, well, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it at Guilford Press, who, are, who is the publisher of it. I'm sure it's on Barnes and Noble and other places. If you go to my website, you'll see things about how this stuff relates to politics, to entertainment, um, uh, to business, because I think it relates to everything. And, and I'm trying to do cons some consulting in that in those areas in order to spread it around. And uh, I think that's about all I can say in 30 seconds. Uh, an academic takes about a half hour to clear his throat. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's very hard for me to, to say anything in that in that short a period of time. But thank you. Thank you for the great work. Thank you for sharing your work with us, Professor. Again, it's a wonderful contribution to understanding the human condition. 
Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and we'll join us again next week, same time, same place. And do tell your friends, let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.